Yeah, okay. Welcome, everybody. Good afternoon. Our speakers today, the authors of the book Hollywood and Israel History, Tony Shaw and Giora Goldberg. Tony Shaw is professor of contemporary history at the University of Hertfordshire. And Giora is also a historian, and he chairs the Department of Multidisciplinary Studies at the Kinneret College, I'm sorry, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. Um, I won't go into the details of their CVs, just in order for them uh, to allow them to jump straight into this presentation. Thank you so much for coming here to present your work. Uh, we will have a presentation followed by questions and answers, so um, um, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you. Right, thank you. Giora and I are going to act as a sort of wrestling tag team today. I'm going to say a little bit first, uh, and then Giora will speak for perhaps uh, 15, 20 minutes, and then I'll come in in the, in the second half of that. We expect to speak for 45 minutes, no, no more than that. Um, you'll have lots of images to look at, and given that this is about image, then you need films. Yakov asked us, uh, have you got films to show today? And we, we thought about whether we should, but we thought we didn't really have the time, so apologies. There won't be any film clips today, but there will be images to make up for it. So this is a book about uh, what we see as the special relationship that has developed over many decades between Hollywood and the State of Israel. The book and our talk today will look at the long history of that relationship uh, we'll go back to the pre-state days, but by and large focus um, on the period from 1948 through to the present day. We're historians. Uh, we've done a ton of work in various archives in Hollywood and the United States to try and get at this story from both sides. Um, we've also had some European and Arab-based sources as well. Uh, we're looking at the relationship between Hollywood and Israel on screen, which is what you might expect, i.e. what films has Hollywood made about Israel? Why is it made those films? Why is it not made other films and TV shows, but predominantly films? But we're as interested in what the relationship between Hollywood and Israel is off screen. And this is where hopefully our archival digging bears fruit. So we're interested in why have certain filmmakers, certain film stars, supported Israel? How have they supported Israel? Have they just funded, helped raise funds for Israel? No, it's a lot more interesting than that. Have they lobbied? Have they been political activists for Israel? So we start, for instance, with this image here of Frank Sinatra. This is an image of him visiting Israel and opening a youth centre in his name, in Nazareth in 1962. Why would Frank Sinatra, not a Jew, why would he be interested in doing that? And we're going to explore that a little bit today. Why do we see this as important? It's obviously interesting. It might arguably be entertaining because it's about Hollywood. But we see this as important because we're trying to look at, should we say, the cultural side of the relationship between the United States and Israel. We're looking at the soft side of that alliance that has developed over decades. And so that's where I think our contribution is. And we're essentially going to be arguing that we see Hollywood as a really important gluing agent in that relationship between the United States and Israel 
over the past 60, 70 years. So the structure of the talk, and I'll stop talking and hand over to Gyura. We're going to take you, by and large, through a chronological narrative of the relationship between Hollywood and Israel. Um, and trying to, and I know perhaps a number of you will be as interested in what the relationship is today uh, compared with, let's say, what it was in the 1960s. So we can come through to the present day. Gyura will, by and large, take the, the first number of decades and I'll finish off with the, the latter. Okay, thanks, Tony. So, uh, good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for coming. Um, our, our book takes a chronological approach, but also a thematic one, because themes develop over time. Trends in Hollywood, or subjects which, uh, in which uh, the Zionist movement first, and then Israel is involved, uh, uh, involved with. So, uh, our story begins um, in the 1970s. And it begins in the 1970s, and this is in the book too, because we look at this period as the height of the relationship. And uh, in that, at that time, in the 1970s, you had uh, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin coming over to Hollywood in 1976. He was uh, not the first Israeli Prime Minister who came to Hollywood. In fact, all had, and since did, bar one. And uh, there's a very big party there for him. I would say 90% of the world entertainment capital industry is there to greet him. S studio heads, stars. We see in this particular picture, Dan Aroz singing uh, reach, reach Out and Touch with him. A big, big party for a visiting <laughs> prime minister. It's not something that usually happens in Hollywood. Two years later, in 1978, it's Israel's 30th birthday. And there's again a big celebration in Hollywood, which is not just in a Hollywood hall and reported in the press. It's actually broadcast live on US national network television to an audience numbering tens of millions. And here again, all the top stars and producers, but of course for the audience, the wider audience, it's the stars. Kirk Douglas, Paul Newman. I won't, we won't even bother with a whole list because it's everybody who counts at the time, all there to congratulate Israel and say happy birthday to a state. Barbara Streisand is the keynote of this, uh, of this event. She closes it with a, an interview, a live interview. Today, of course, every kid can do it on WhatsApp. But in 1978, it was a big thing with the retired Israeli Prime Minister, Golda Meir. Golda Meir, who was just a little later, uh, she uh, came to, uh, she was a, an immigrant from, a Zionist immigrant from the United States. Golda Meir was a subject of one Hollywood film with Ingrid Bergman in the 1980s, and currently another Hollywood film, and perhaps a Hollywood series there's talk also about a Hollywood series. What is this fascination and interest in Golda Meir in this case, but in Israel as a whole? So Barbara Streisand is interviewing her live and then at the end finishes the whole event with a singing uh, the Israeli national anthem, Hatikva, and all this again on American television. The 1970s is the height of the relationship. We're going to reach 50 years half a century earlier, and then conclude half a century later, 
uh, around the time that we are now, 2020. If we go back uh, to pre-state, the pre-state period, which is the subject of, uh, of, a, of a chapter in our book, I would say there are three things that, that can be and should be emphasized. First of all, there's a story, a well-known story, the most well-known book, Neil Gabler's, from something like 30 years ago, about Hollywood, Hollywood's relationship with the American Jewish community and the importance of the Jews in creating Hollywood. But the idea there is that in order for the Jews to succeed as big producers in Hollywood, nothing of their Jewish identity was or could be on film. So somebody who becomes a very big supporter of Israel, Daniel Kaminsky, arrives in Hollywood. Uh, he has to change his name to Danny Kay. He has to dye his hair. He didn't agree to a nose job. And uh, this idea that Hollywood or the bosses of Hollywood stay away from Jewish identity is something that we slightly challenge in that chapter because what one can see is that while the films... There's nothing about Jewish identity and certainly nothing about Zionism. Philanthropy is a different thing. And from the 1920s already, those studio heads, which supposedly are not interested in their Jewish identity, actually are all involved with United Jewish Appeal and with Palestine Appeal. But it's not out of a Zionist motivation, as they see it. They're what called in the language of, of the Zionist movement, non-Zionists, not anti but none. These are people who support Jews immigrating to Palestine, especially long-suffering Jews in East Europe, now that can't come to the United States, but they don't think that they should themselves end up in Palestine or the successful American Jewish community. And this is, this is one point, the importance of philanthropy that begins and very early, and we will see continuing into the years of Israeli statehood, and Tony will be talking about it later in an Israeli context. The second thing, of course, is the importance of the Holocaust and the place of Hollywood within American Jewish community, which did or showed some interest in the Zionist solution, but uh, which waned and then it grew up again in the 1930s. But certainly the Holocaust here is a turning point, uh, an important turning point in drawing uh, support for Zionism in the American Jewish community and one can see that in uh, Hollywood too with adverts such as it keep at it Mr. President American Arts Committee for Palestine where you have a long long list of Hollywood stars not all Jewish many progressives who all supported Zionism at the time but a, a fair majority of them Jewish are all supporting free to allow free immigration of Jews to Palestine. This was the big call of the Zionist movement since uh, from 1939 to 48, uh, when uh, immigration was restricted. The third point to make is the interest, the particular interest of Hollywood in the right wing, revisionist uh, right wing of the Zionist movement. The interest of the most important figure and well-known and Quite a bit has been written about the man on the right here, uh, Ben Hecht, one of the most successful screenwriters in the first half of the 20th century, whose open uh, support um, in the late 1940s to the Irgun in particular in philanthropy, but also in public statements, 
It's hard to believe that any American newspaper would print an ad today which says a letter to the terrorists of Palestine and American Jews' heart rise in happiness every time that you blow up a bomb. This is the rhetoric of the late 1940s and this is a full page ad in the New York Herald Tribune and quite a few other newspapers uh, across the states and in variety. So you've got support uh, for the Ilgun in Hollywood but then you've got big opponents also. And an interesting thing here is already pre-state there is a campaign between the labor movement which more or less controls the Jewish establishment in Palestine and its right-wing opponents over the heart and soul of American Jewry, but specifically Hollywood. In the early 1950s, after Israel is established, something, uh, or late 40s and early 50s, something new is added to that. And that is the first films which are to do with the Zionist endeavor or campaign against the British, and, uh, early is uh, and Israel in its early years. The two themes here, are the two important themes which will carry through in films in decades to come are Jewish uh, regeneration in Palestine, campaign against the British uh, forces, uh, the British administration of Palestine, and the idea of Israel, when established in Palestine before that, as a haven and the place where uh, Jews escaping the Holocaust um, can find a, a redemption and also recovery, a psychological recovery. The film on the left is the first Hollywood film made about, uh, about Zionism in a big way. And this is the Zionist campaign or the Irgun campaign against the British. It was produced by Universal Studios because the wife of one of the owners of the studio, Frankie Spitz, was a big, big, big supporter of the Irgun in Hollywood. And when this film was made, just after Israel was established, the one concern of the Israeli government's consulate, just established in Los Angeles, was to make sure that the Irgun doesn't mention, get mentioned too much as part of political campaigning in Israel. In fact, Menachem Begin, as a character, was supposed to appear in that film. And in our research, we found that he was left out as one of these... This is now uh, uh, campaigning about who did more to uh, allow Israel to be established and will continue in further films. The first film, film about modern Israel, Kirk Douglas stars in The Juggler. And the interesting thing about this film is that it shows the, uh, the progressive attachment and involvement with Israel at the time. These are not just Jews, but these are progressive Jews. And they are in love with the idea of the Hisadrut trade union. Frank Sinatra is one of them, a big campaigner for the Hisadrut. That's why the donation is for a center in Nazareth, which is a Jewish Arab one. And, uh, and the kibbutz movement. Fred Zinnemann came to Israel already in late, uh, in late 1948. The war wasn't over yet. Tried to make a film about a kibbutz fighting and withstanding a, an Arab attack in 48 with Karl Foreman, didn't succeed. Both became big Israel supporters, but they went on to make High Noon and to uh, make glory for both themselves as part of Hollywood history. But the idea was a film about Palestine. Then this film, uh, The Juggler, is the creation of uh, uh, Michael Blankford, who was uh, 
uh, had to uh, uh, testify before the House of uh, Un-American Activities, uh, Stanley Kramer as a producer, and Kirk Douglas. These are all Hollywood liberals, Jewish too, not all Jewish, majority Jewish, but who support Israel, not just as a place where Jews come to, but which offers a kind of a, a new hope for the world of social arrangements and highlighting the kibbutz, which is central in the, the juggler, and we can talk about it uh, uh, perhaps a little later so we don't run out of time. Nevertheless, Hollywood, and it's important to remember that, both if you have an ethnic identity and a nationalist uh, ideology which want, makes you want to make films, uh, such as uh, uh, Lil Spitz and Universal, or if you um, are interested in making films about an Israeli kibbutz or the Israeli or the Ilgun, uh, the ideological considerations, are, uh, commercial considerations, are the most important. And both these films that we saw earlier didn't make money. And for Hollywood, that's the bottom line. There have been many, many projects. We discussed some of them in our book. There was a lot of enthusiasm in making films about Israel but they just didn't materialize. And the answer is always with a commercial bottom line. This is a high-risk industry. If you build a building for 15 million, 50 million pounds and you want it to be a top-class hotel and there's COVID for two years, you might lose money, but you've still got a building worth a lot of money. So you might lose a few millions, but not everything. A film, if you invest 50 millions in a film and nobody wants to see it, you've got something to show your grandchildren, more or less than to keep on the shelf. And that's why it's a high-risk industry where you can make a lot of money and lose a lot. And as one uh, pro-Israeli Hollywood producer told the Israeli consul in the 1950s, I'm a Jew on Saturday. Go to synagogue, I give to Israel in terms of philanthropy, buy bonds, but I'm not going to risk my job with the shareholders on making a film about Israel, it won't work. And the most successful trend in the 1950s for Israel was the biblical trend, which was at its peak in Hollywood in the 1950s. And there was something for Israel too there, both in terms of the Bible and it being the Holy Land. There was an attempt to bring over big Hollywood productions to Israel. It didn't succeed that much because, again, they want to film in the Holy Land, but... Spain looks nearly the same, it's the Mediterranean. And if the Spanish government will give 2,000 soldiers for free, uh, while the IDF doesn't have the money to do that, the Israeli def uh, army, then uh, of course in the end the filming will be in Spain with all the best intentions. However, this man on the left, Moish Perlman, who was Israel's probably most important uh, uh, a propagandist or Hasbara person in the Israeli court, that's a polite term, uh, from 1948 to the, six, to the early 60s, uh, and very famous for his interest in Hollywood. He was rumored to be wanted to be a screenwriter. A lot of people claim that he styles himself on Groucho Marx. He's actually from the East End of London. Uh, so Perman managed to get quite a few projects to be interested in Israel, or at least to show the Israel story. For example, Solomon and Sheba, where we have here Yul Brynner as... Uh, King Solomon defeating Egypt. This is made just after the Suez War. And basically, the, the uh, Hollywood narrates the story as if it's Suez happening in biblical times. And of course, the Egyptians lose, which was a bit different to the real story, where Britain was on the receiving end. Um, okay, Exodus is the most uh, uh, famous, most important 
probably most successful product of Israeli propaganda still since the state's existence has been established until this very day. It is a, a film, again, that has the theme of Zionist endeavors before Israel's establishment. It focuses on that. Uh, Israeli government hoped it would say more than that, but then it's a, such a long book, uh, uh, Leon Uris's book, which was also written with the help of the Israeli government, that even to make it into a three-hour film, uh, and a very talkative film, and people are coming in and going out of doors, or as a New Yorker reviewer wrote, there's more doors in this film than the Waldorf Astoria. <laughs> but, 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 in, but in this film, Exodus, there's a very... Uh, first of all, there's one of Hollywood's most important screenwriter, Dalton Trumbo, and the subject of the film himself. And there's a lot of very interesting discussion in this film on terrorism, the nature of force as a liberating agent, and again, these ongoing arguments, uh, liberating of nations, this ongoing argument between the Irgun and uh, the Haganah, the uh, unofficial army or uh, paramilitary organization of the, of the Zionist leadership. But, but the most important thing about Exodus, the success is, and we can see it in the picture here, and this is from the moment that one of Israel's uh, top uh, foreign office officials read uh, in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles, Leon Uris let him read the book, which was supposed to be a script. He understood the important thing about what this book will mean. There's a young, heroic, soon to become Israeli, that a young, non-Jewish American falls in love with. And she represented the non-Jewish American public audience. And at the beginning, she's not anti-Semitic, but she feels uneasy about Jews. At the end of the book and the film, especially the book, she's wearing a kova tembel, a tembel hat, which is the, the symbol of the kibbutz movement, all of the Zionist endeavor, and haki and ready to go over to go on and fight for Israel. And uh, it's her growing attachment pay, uh, uh, in the film to Paul Newman of Eat St. Mary, uh, to Paul Newman. And on the top of this, uh, it's supposed to be Mount Tabor. It's actually a little hill by the Arab village of Mashhad, not far from there. But that was where it was convenient to, 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 shot the scene, uh, to shoot the scene. And, uh, and he says that I'm a Jew. This is my country. And then she falls all over him. Now, the important thing here is that one thing all Isra those who are uh, toilers of Israeli propaganda uh, were worried about in the late 40s already, that support for Israel comes through and because of Jewish suffering and especially the Holocaust. That was the big galvanizer of Jewish and especially non-Jewish support. But as the... The man who probably established the Israeli Foreign Service writes in 1948, in time there will be other people who are suffering and perhaps will be suffering more. The fact that we have support because we're suffering, that's not enough. And we haven't managed, he says, to convince the world that this is a, is a case, that the, the land, that we have a particular claim for the land. And of course, Exodus does that in a big way in a very big way, beyond all the other justifications. In fact, Dalton Trumbo there says that, you know, that both Jews and Arabs have a claim to this land. There is a line there. 
But the whole film, three hours, tells something which is, um, of course, uh, very different. I'll conclude here and uh, just say that uh, the, the era of heroism continued in the 1960s with a few films which followed Exodus because of the success of Exodus. The moment a film is successful, others will be made. But because these weren't such successful films, both Judith, again in a kibbutz in Galilee, like three other films, the importance of kibbutz, not just Israel, and uh, Cast a Giant Shadow with a whole load of Hollywood stars, Kirk Douglas again, Frank Sinatra, Yul Brynner, uh, and, uh, and others, so, uh, and uh, John Wayne, of course, uh, we even supported the production, and, uh, and uh, this is uh, the height of Hollywood filmmaking in the first era about Israel, the era of heroism. Tony. Great, thank you. So I'm going to switch focus now, we're going to continue on our narrative, we're still in the 1960s, but I want to switch focus away from uh, the movies themselves to what's happening behind the movies, as I said at the outside, outset, we're as interested in what's going on off screen as on it. So I'm going to talk for a few minutes about some very interesting people you may not have heard of, but were really important players in the relationship between Hollywood and Israel. Dor Sherry uh, is uh, the guy on the left sitting uh, in the, between the two actors. Dor Sherry was head of MGM. Dor Sherry turned out to be a very important bridger between Los Angeles and New York. Um, a character who, when Ben-Gurion made his first visit to the United States in 1951, it was this head of MGM who arranged the party for Ben-Gurion and helped launch Israeli bombs. Dor Sherry also was sort of the architect of what's called the Motion Picture Project, which was an organisation set up within Hollywood to try and engender greater interest in Israel, try and engender greater interest in the... Uh, depiction of Jews on screen in the right way. Uh, so quite an influential character. He goes on to be uh, head of the Anti-Defamation League in the 1960s as well. So a man who's bridging Hollywood in New York. The guy on the right, um, whose face you can see, uh, is Arthur Krim. Arthur Krim, again, was a New York-based studio lawyer who ran one of the big um, film studio, sorry, corporations, United Artists in the 50s and 60s. And it was United Artists who, by and large, made a number of movies, which Gior has been talking about, that the pro-Israeli uh, company within Hollywood. But what's interesting about Krim, therefore, you can perhaps recognise who Krim is talking to there. He's about to introduce the actress Shirley MacLaine to President Kennedy, and Krim was a really important mover and shaker in the relationship between Washington and Hollywood in the 1960s. Krim was very close to Kennedy's successor, Johnson, was very influential in helping Johnson to become very pro-Israeli. Some of you will be aware that it's in the 1960s, around the 67 war, that the United States starts to really step in and be pro-Israeli in terms of military support. Uh, very strong relationship with, with LBJ. Uh, there were rumours, not to spread them here, but we were interested in you that, uh, that um, Krim's wife was very close indeed to, to Johnson. Uh, she became one of the first people to, to know uh, that the 1967 war had, had started when in uh, 
Johnson's ranch, he, went, he knocked on her door, she was in her negligee, and he wanted to, to know that the, the war had started. Um, we can leave that for questions. This guy, um, this guy um, who's standing up by the side of the camera there, he is person, a person who none of you, I imagine, will have heard of. This is Rabbi Max Nussbaum, who was a sort of encourager and coordinator of Hollywood support for Israel from the 40s through to the 70s. Nussbaum ran one of the most prestigious synagogues in Hollywood, Temple Israel of Hollywood. Um, here he is with Cecil B. DeMille, who's sitting in front of him on the set of The Ten Commandments, another of biblical movies of the 1950s. But Max Nussbaum, as a rabbi, was supreme in converting Gentiles uh, to become supporters of Israel. His two great successes in that respect were Liz Taylor, who you can see there uh, on a visit to Jerusalem. Liz Taylor uh, was converted around about 1960 to Judaism and became a, a really long-standing supporter of Israel through until her death in 2011, always visiting Israel uh, during and after war times in, in the Lebanon War of 1982. She goes for a so-called peace mission. Uh, Liz Taylor, some of you are too young to know who Liz Taylor was, but believe me, you can't get a bigger movie star than Liz Taylor. And to have someone as famous as that supporting Israel it's got to count for something. Sammy Davis Jr., on the other hand, less famous than Liz Taylor, but really important, were a period who was also converted to Judaism and converted to be a supporter of Israel by our friend Nuss, Max Nussbaum, again in 1960. Having a black American support Israel, particularly after... Um, the 1967 war, when the question of the occupied territories comes up, and when a number of African Americans are turning against Israel because they see it as sort of part of this white colonization, um, having Sammy Davis Jr. support Israel again through until his death in 1990 was politically very important. We're through into the mid 70s now. Uh, and Giora started off by talking about this period, the mid to late 1970s, as being the high point of the relationship between Hollywood and Israel. Uh, and the interest that Hollywood took in the Entebbe raid of 1976, this daring Israeli mission to rescue uh, predominantly Israeli passengers held uh, captive in Africa in 1976, Hollywood had such an interest in this story, and that makes perfect sense. It was a great story. I mean, you couldn't make up a better story for Hollywood in this respect. A daring mission uh, involving a military mission that pays off in large respects, the saving of the vast majority of the hostages, little unknown information about that. One, one filmmaker who wanted to make a, 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 a film about Entebbe had himself been one of the hostages. You couldn't make it up. 17 studios getting involved in wanting to make a movie about it in Tebby. 17. Two telemovies are quickly made, and you see these telemovies here. And there, you have, again, you have the major stars of the period all wanting to star. Not necessarily because they're 
pro-Israeli, a number of them. Richard Dreyfus starred, for instance, and he admitted, hey, I just did it for you know, half a million quid, or, sorry, half a million dollars. I didn't do it for pro-Zionism, etc. Israel wanted to make a, or help Hollywood to make a big blockbuster on Entebbe, and it failed. Hollywood wasn't up for it because the big Hollywood studio who wanted to make that was trumped by these quickly made telly movies. So again, going back to our point, what you're always making, commerce always comes first rather than ideology. We've by and large been talking so far about the supporters of Israel in Hollywood. There weren't, in this period that we've been talking about now, many supporters of the Palestinians. But one person who stands out is Vanessa Redgrave, who's there on the left. This is Vanessa Redgrave on location in southern Lebanon on the making of a film called The Palestinian, which came out in 1977. She stars in it, and, it, and the film, sort of film's most infamous moment is when she's dancing and has a Kalashnikov above her head. This is active support for what many saw as Palestinian terrorism. A year after, because she's made that movie, she becomes a hate figure amongst the Jewish right in the United States. And lo and behold, she wins an Oscar in 1978. She wins an Oscar for starring in a Holocaust movie. So the Jewish American right, the Jewish Defense League, are out to campaign against her. She attends the Oscars. It's the 50th birthday of the Oscars. Millions are watching on TV. It's a big night. And what does she do when she's given the Oscar for supporting actress? She accuses those outside of being Zionist hoodlums. And there's a gasp in the auditorium, muttering, a quiet silence descends. And this is the first time that anyone said anything like this about Israel on a major screen live, this was quite a moment for Hollywood's relationship with Israel. She carries on to be a hate figure, and you see, therefore, in the photograph uh, on the right, how uh, she's being compared with Yasser Arafat and, and Adolf Hitler, again, amongst many on the political right, uh, the Jewish political right in the United States. Was her career affected by that? Some people argued afterwards that she was grey-listed, not blacklisted, but grey-listed. We didn't find much evidence of that. We didn't find much evidence of her having her career ruined in any way. Um, the 70s and 80s are the beginning of the great terrorism phase for Hollywood. Uh, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, Hollywood makes more movies about Israel which are about terrorism than anything else. Um, terrorism is extraordinarily popular on the small and large screen as entertainment. Hollywood feeds that. And here are a couple of, of, of movies. One is Black Sunday is important because it comes out in 1976, same year as the Entebbe crisis. And it's the first American movie which actually depicts Palestinians on American soil. And it stars Robert Shaw as an Israeli secret agent who stops this Palestinian massacre of a Super Bowl crowd. Ten years later, we have movies like Delta Force. Delta Force is this schlocky, crappy, 
badly made movie which was really popular, especially amongst teenagers and those in their 20s. The Delta Force, importantly, is made by Menachem Golan. Menachem Golan is an instance of an Israeli filmmaker coming from Israel, making it big in Hollywood. And Menachem Golan is the king of the terrorism movies in the 80s and 90s. And one can imagine what these terrorism movies depict. And this Delta Force depicts a, it's almost like an Entebbe crisis 10 years on, with the Americans and Israeli military coming together to save some hijacked passengers. You know, if Entebbe worked, Entebbe will continue to work as entertainment. Yeah, about money making. We're moving through to the last couple of decades now, and I'm going to just, how much time do we have? I'll be speaking. Steven Spielberg, the most powerful filmmaker for the past 30 years? Surely. Schindler's List, the filmic document of the Holocaust for most people. President Clinton encouraged all school children to watch Schindler's List. It's a document, it's a historical document for many people. Around that time, Spielberg rediscovers his Jewish roots. And through that, he becomes an active supporter of Israel and is one of the most, and has been one of the most powerful supporters of Israel. Uh, off screen, many of you won't be aware of the, the the, the, the activities that Spielberg has been involved in for the past 30 years in trying to bring, bring reconciliation between Israel and Palestinians. Now, on screen, he does this courtesy of his film Munich, which comes out in 2005. Gura talked about Exodus, this film that came out in 1960. I think Munich is, the, after Exodus, the most important Hollywood picture about Israel because it tells us about this shift that's taken place within Hollywood where liberal uh, directors like Spielberg are, for those of you who haven't seen Munich, Munich is about uh, the retribution that Israeli secret services uh, want on the, um, those people who've caused the Munich um, massacre of 1972. And Eric Banner, his character, you see Eric Banner there on the right, his character uh, leads that, this onslaught against the Palestinian terrorists become, but becomes disaffected by it, becomes disillusioned by it. And this in many ways is what Spielberg is trying to say. Look, is this really the way to peace in the Middle East if we're just killing one another? It was a very controversial film to some extent in Israel, more so amongst American Jews in the United States. Uh, some of those people accused uh, Spielberg effectively of being a traitor. Omar is a film which came out about 10 years or so ago and is a quick illustration of, of the degree to which Palestinian films are now getting more screen time in the United States. So again, this shift that's gradually taking place Omar was the first wholly Palestinian film that was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, it's a film about the, the difficulties of living under occupation. Coming towards the end now, just think of 
two images left. 2014, Gaza War. Everything kicks off in Hollywood. There's a major row in Hollywood, open row between people on the right and on the left about what Israel is doing, whether it's right or wrong. And we see a major row between the likes of John Voigt, who's there on the left, but he's very much on the political right when it comes to Israel, and Javier Bardem and his wife Penelope Cruz. Bardem and Cruz accuse Israel of genocide. This is a freighted term in the United States. A genocide. And this, again, kicks off as a Twitter storm. There are pop stars getting involved in this, as well as major movie stars like Sylvester Stallone. And there's a big row over what we now in Hollywood think about Israel. Filmmakers like Arnon Milchan, uh, Israeli-born, very important filmmaker in Hollywood, producer of Pretty Woman and other major movies over the past 30 years. Arnon Milchan is, 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 is fingered by a number of anti-Semites, as you can see here, which causes people to think about, hey, this control of Hollywood by Jews, etc., this long trope, gets warmed up again by many on the political right. And so that hoary old accusation becomes reborn again, I think, courtesy of the Gaza War of 2014. These two people sum up, I think, the differences within Hollywood right now. We have Michael Douglas on the left, uh, photographed with his family in Jerusalem, who's a liberal, avowedly liberal, but still a very strong supporter of Israel, including of the Israeli military. And you have Natalie Portman on the right there, Israeli-born, who's distanced herself, a Zionist, but who's distanced herself from especially the Israeli government. Both of these actors were awarded what's called the Genesis Prize, which is Jewish Nobel Douglas was happy to turn up for this, to go to Israel to receive that prize. Natalie Portman refused to go to Israel to receive the prize because Netanyahu would be at the ceremony. So this differences between liberals within Hollywood. But finally, the final image, the Israeli relationship with Hollywood is still very strong. Gal Gadot, probably the biggest Israeli movie star right now, Wonder Woman. Uh, she is an illustration how, of how Israeli stars and filmmakers have now quite an influence within Hollywood itself. The Spy, which is a uh, Netflix series from 2019, was made by Gideon Raff, an Israeli filmmaker who's moved to Hollywood, who was also responsible for the spy series Homeland. Um, these are two illustrations of how there's been almost a brain drain from Hollywood in the last 10 years or so, and these people have moved to Hollywood uh, to ply their trade. And the relationship, therefore, works both ways.